Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. These familiar words may be found in the Gospel of John in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. This, of course, was the upper room discourse. These words were spoken prior to the question that was asked in the book of 2 Peter in chapter 3 at verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? Well, here is one of the places where Jesus made the promise that he will, in fact, come again. And so it is Second Peter in chapter 3, which serves as our text for tonight's lesson. So I invite you to turn there as we continue in a series of lessons, questions about God and about faith. And I'd like to pause, and I'd like to, of course, acknowledge my gratitude to God. Because we serve a God, a God who tells us that he will not forsake those who seek him. We serve a God who will not forget the cry of the humble. We serve a God that we recognize that if any of us, of any of us, forget the fact that if the Lord would count iniquities, that none of us could stand. But the Bible tells us that there is forgiveness with God that he might be feared. And so we do fear our God because God is adorned in majesty and splendor. He is arrayed in glory and beauty. Before his throne is justice and mercy. Truth and righteousness is ever before him. And he is worthy. And worthy is his son, Jesus the Christ who reigns in the hearts of those men and women who have submitted their will unto him. And I'm grateful for all of God's blessings, his providential blessings to all mankind, but those very special blessings that are granted to his children, where all of those spiritual blessings are in Christ. And I'm grateful again once to, to be with you, my brethren, here at Oak Mountain, to be able to worship God together, to be able to sing and to offer worship unto God, to teach and admonish one another. I thank you, Brother Jeremy, in leading us in singing. It is so good for us to be together, to be here, as we contemplate what is all in store for us in glory. I am grateful for all of my brethren. I'm grateful for your willingness to share. I'm grateful for the words of encouragement that you have offered to me. And I got to tell you, I'm especially grateful for all the young people that I see in this assembly. There are so many of you who have been here for every single lesson. And I got to tell you, you encourage me. It says something about your faith. And it talks about the good things that are in store for you. It also says something about your, your parents. It says something about the homes in which you were raised. And so I am certainly glad to be a part of the good work that's going on here at Oak Mountain. I thank the shepherds for your kind and warm invitation, your wives who support you in what you do. I'm grateful for those special servants, those deacons, and your wives who support you in what you do. And of course, I'm grateful for Brother Bob, who labors in the word as he also watches souls at this place. And your beloved Cherry, I'm grateful for the time we've had to worship and work together and spend together. And I thank you so very much for all of you. Thanks again for sharing Fred and Sonia and all the men who joined us as we ate together this afternoon and as we were able to spend a little bit more closer time together. And I'm certainly glad for Frank and for Rodney and Mark and Jeff and Tucker and Luke and all of those. I'm grateful, of course, for Jared and for Kendra. And I'm grateful for all of you and for all that you do. As we study tonight, of course, I am mindful 
of this question that is, in fact, before us. Because in the hustle and the bustle of life's routine, you know, people sometimes get so saturated by the present that they give little, if any, thought about the future. And it is true that we find in God's word that the unnecessary worries about the future are forbidden by God. Since this kind of worry, according to the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew chapter 6 specifically, this kind of unnecessary worry calls the ability of God into question. Of course, in Matthew in chapter 6, verse 33, the Bible tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. And if you were here tonight, you will note that I mentioned Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. If you were paying attention, I mentioned that that was Matthew 6, 34, when in fact it's Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. And so I appreciate the good attention of those who did catch that. You were good students of the Bible. I also mentioned in the book of Proverbs in chapter 10, verse 10, which I quoted Proverbs in chapter 9, verse 10. Where there the Bible tells us to fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And for those of you who are searching the scriptures to make sure those things were so, even though I mentioned it was Proverbs chapter 10, verse 10, it was in fact Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And so I went home last night and I looked on YouTube, I listened to that lesson, and I realized that I had made those mistakes. But it just caused me to wonder who else caught those mistakes. And I appreciate those who did catch it, that you didn't just run up to me and let me know that I made a mistake. And I know if I make a typographical error, and I know Brother Bob can attest to that, you'll point it out. But it is for the reason that we want to make sure that God's word is preaching his truth and sincerity, that we should make sure. And that we not just rely upon the one who's doing the speaking. And so I commend you in that. But yet at the same time, we understand from that same passage in Matthew in chapter 6, verse 34 that I mentioned, the Bible said that the morrow is going to take care of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And that's Matthew in chapter 6, verse 34. And so it is rare indeed to find people who can see through the thought-consuming affairs of the present and contemplate, to contemplate future events relative to the souls of men. There is a difference between the frivolous worries about the future, which are forbidden, and serious contemplation about future actions of the Lord. And to be sure, only time. The only time many people stop to think about what comes next is sometimes in the case of death. And even then, such thoughts are provoked generally in the death of someone especially close, like a family member or other cherished friend. And if people do reflect upon the future, it is typically born out of the wrong motivation. You know, most thoughts about things to come are limited to the physical and temporal elements of the world. And of those things that provide little or no foundation whatsoever about any lasting benefit. And people are getting caught up today in world affairs, you know, global warming, you know, the next election that is going to occur. And maybe all the hostility in the world and where all that's going to lead to. But the word of God provides for us the world view that we ought to have about what lies, in fact, in the future. And even when people think about life beyond this age, it is generally speculation about what the Bible says. I mean, and what this does is it causes people sometimes not to really pay attention to the scriptures, but oftentimes to those things that are of a speculative nature. For instance, the rapture. It's a major doctrine in premillennialism. But the truth of the matter, with that false doctrine, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. But the, the idea of the rapture is, and I think I find that in the book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. The definition of rapture is simply the thought or the feeling of being carried away to another place. But the doctrine of the rapture is foreign to the scriptures. And so some, you know, some people... They take the constant expectation of the Lord's term to an extreme. Like those people who think that they can guess the date when the Lord's going to come back. And there are people who have done so. 
And the Bible tells us that we don't know. As a matter of fact, the Bible uses phrases like a thief in the night. We mentioned Matthew chapter 24. Remember doing these series of lessons. And we talked about how difficult that text is. And sometimes it's even twisted. But to be sure, that text is certainly talking about judgment. And whether it's talking about the final judgment or not, we do know that the Lord's going to come back. And when he comes back in judgment, it's going to be consistent with his second coming as well as the end. And we're going to talk about some of those things tomorrow night from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, and then come at the end when he shall deliver the kingdom back to God who gave it. But in times of the first century, you remember, like those folks in Thessalonica, they fell under the severe rebuke of the apostle Paul because many of them, they looked for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Many of them quit their jobs. And they thought that the second coming of Christ was imminent. And the apostle Paul had to write them and to tell them what does happen when the Lord does come. But generally speaking, each moment was lived with the understanding that Jesus could return at any moment. And the same is true today. The repeated use of comparisons like a thief in the night. It drew some of the greatest word pictures in the minds of some of the earlier saints. And perhaps no single person emphasized this more than the Apostle Paul, who penned the majority of the New Testament. And of course, the entire point of starting this way is to prove that people today sometimes are incredibly gullible regarding false doctrines of the Lord's return. If people would look at television, oftentimes you see these so-called Bible prophet experts who speak about eschatology. Eschatology, that big word simply talks about end times. What's going to happen in the end? And as we've seen throughout these series of lessons, questions about God and faith, we know that the answers to our questions can be read. And that's what Jesus says. Have you not read? And so we're going to do the same thing with the question that we have tonight. And so it might be said, especially in a modern context, that the world was primed for theories like premillennialism that mar the precious truth of the word of God. And that, much like the thinking of many of the Jews, is simply a misunderstanding of the spiritual nature of the kingdom. And looking back to the first century, the difference would be that Christians were not gullible to the types of theories that now plague mankind. Even though the basic structure of false doctrine has never changed, the suggestion that the kingdom had not been established or that Christ did not fulfill his mission would have been met with fierce opposition then from many, most, if not all, members of the Lord's church. And so the only way to attack the church in this realm was to suggest that the religion of the Christians was faulty because they obviously served a God who did not follow through on his promises. And I believe that is exactly why the Apostle Peter penned this second epistle that he wrote. And that's the epistle that we're going to study this afternoon. We're in the book of Second Peter in chapter 3, and I invite you to study along with us. Second Peter in chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. And so first of all, I hear those pages turn. It says something about you. The Bible says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. We don't always know why people do what they do. But when we read God's word, oftentimes the motive why people do what they do is pointed out to us. And Peter is now telling us why he is in fact writing. The purpose of this second epistle, Peter says, was to remind Christians of what the prophets had said of old and what they had taught and what the apostles of Jesus Christ had commanded. And look at what he says at verse 3. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. 
These scoffers. These people who mock. These people who complain. These people who make light of things that they do not understand. Things that they don't like and things that they cannot refute. Robinson says that the word scoffers, it's spoken of those who are imposters, those who would be false teachers. They would be likened to deceivers. They would be likened to Bible critics. They would be likened to perhaps to modern day scientists, some of them, or philosophers, or geologists, or even atheists and humanists. And such like. And the motives, he says, of these objectors is revealed by the words walking according to their own lust. And so look at what he says. And this is what they say. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the creation, he says, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the creation. And so these scoffers, these Bible critics, in spite of all the evidence that had been revealed, and we've talked about evidences. We've talked about the evidences that God has provided for us. Remember the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 1? Now faith is what? It is the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. God has provided proof, which is the basis of what we believe and what we hope in and for. And some of this is, of course, in creation. Because as Psalm 19, 1 says, the heaven declare the glory of God. And so we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God and we can see his power and his glory and the Godhead and what God is like, that there is an intelligent, all power, all powerful creator. And then, of course, when we open up the Bible and we look at God's word, God's word reveals to us where all of this began. And so there is evidence here. And so the theme of this chapter is the promise of his coming. And so here is what we have. We have a summary of all that the prophets and the apostles taught in regard to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so the time period embraced in this passage starts with the beginning of creation. And so they should know that in the last days, Peter says in verse 3. I believe that to be the Christian age. I believe that to be the days that we are living in now. I believe that to be the days that the prophet spoke about in Jude 2. I believe that's what Isaiah said in Isaiah in chapter 2. I believe that's what Micah said in Micah in chapter 4. I believe that was when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and ushered in the gospel. When he used those keys and opened up the door of the kingdom. I believe that was the beginning of the last days that that the last days in which we are currently living in. And so these scoffers and these mockers would come and they would ridicule the idea that the Lord would return and the world would end. But again, where we begin this evening, Jesus promised, remember, in the book of John in chapter 14. And I know that promise was to the disciples who were in that upper room. But the promise, of course, is to all of us because he is coming back. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, but it was not just for them. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says, I will come again. And so therein is the promise. And so he would receive his own, that where I am, there you might be also. And so the disciples were continuing to preach and to talk about the return of Jesus Christ. And I firmly believe that we need to be talking more about the return of Jesus Christ. I believe we need to be talking about what the prophets had said. I believe we need to be talking more about what Jesus himself had said. I believe we need to be talking more about what the apostle Paul had said. That Jesus is in fact coming back. But yet he had not returned. At least when Peter wrote this, he has not returned yet even now. 
And so the father, referring probably to the first generation of Christians, they had fallen asleep in death. And yet things were continuing as usual. Now, can't you hear these scoffers? Why, those old fools. They were always looking and talking about the second coming business. And now they're all dead and everything is almost the same as if it's there always been. And sure enough, seed time and harvest has come just as, prom- as God had promised. Remember, after he had destroyed the world by water, seed time and harvest, cold and winter, some in heat. God said, I've not destroyed again the world by water. And he put that rainbow in the sky. The laws of nature were uniform. The sun rose and set in the same place. The tide ebbed and flowed as always. And why should they expect a sudden change? And so the modern theories of evolution are based upon the supposition that nothing of consequence has happened in the past that does not continue to happen today. And upon this presupposition, they reject the Bible account of creation and universal flood. They're not happening today, they say. And of course, evolution from one kind to another life is not happening today either. There are no intermediate forms of life, but to point this out sometime, they say that's unfair. And that doesn't count. And so for perhaps 18 centuries, what these scoffers said has remained fairly constant. Because things have continued about the same, and the Lord hasn't returned. And Jesus hasn't come yet. But look at what Peter says. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, for this they willingly forget. He says that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition or destruction of ungodly men. And so what Peter is telling us is what God's answer to these scoffers is. So what is God's answer? Well, first things, all things have not continued the same. I mean, and the evidence of that is the fact that the flood. So we've got the witness of the flood itself, and we've got the witness of Moses, who believed to have written that, the first five books of the Bible, recorded in the book of Genesis in chapter 6, 7, and 8, where God destroyed the world. But not only that, Peter himself wrote about Noah. Remember when he talked about eight souls were dis- eight souls were saved, First Peter chapter three, verse 20. We have the record of Jesus Christ himself who used Noah as an example. Remember in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, "Wherefore you also be ready." He was talking about the example of Noah. And of course, we got the Hebrew writer in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 and verse 7. By faith, Noah, the Bible says, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, he moved with godly fear. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And so we've got testimony. We have the evidence of the flood itself. And we have the word of God that testifies towards that. But I want you to notice again in verse 5 and 6. Look at verse 5 specifically beginning. He says, this they willingly forget. One translation says, this they are willingly ignorant of. They were ignorant of something. To be ignorant means to be uninformed. It means to not know. And you know, we ought to feel sorry for a person that is ignorant. You know, there used to be a time when people were denied the basic right to be able to read and write. But people can't say that today. And so when people today are willingly ignorant, it says something about them. 
It says that people will conveniently ignore the evidence or they will ignore the knowledge that is available to them or they will just uh, reject it outright and not, uh, not recognize its power to inform them, empower them. They were willingly ignorant. They turned away their eyes and their ears from the truth. And there are people like that today. Many of these people claim to be religious. And yet they are ignorant about what God has said. About many things. About salvation. What it takes in order for a person to be saved. They are ignorant about the organization of the Lord's church. They are ignorant about the work and the work that God has left for the church to do. They are ignorant about how one should live the life of a Christian. They are ignorant about just basic fundamental things. About the reason why Jesus came. That the Father sent him to be the Savior of the world. They are ignorant about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. And again, Lord willing, we'll be talking about that tomorrow night. They are ignorant about what God has in store for us. They are ignorant about what happens after a person dies. And God has made that information available to us. And again, I tell you, Jesus said, have you not read? And so if we have questions, the answers to our questions can be read. And so what is God's answer? All things have not continued the same. You've got the flood. And not only that, all things will not continue the same. Because what God says is he is going to bring a judgment of fire. He promised not to destroy the world by water, but there is going to come a day when God says, I'm going to destroy the world by fire. Now, I got to tell you what, like people don't believe the story of the flood. A lot of people don't believe the story or the statement that God has said with reference to this world being destroyed by fire. So look at verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, God spoke it in existence, Psalm 33. At verse 6 and 9, God spoke it into existence. And then God destroyed the world, recorded in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, 7, and 8. And that same word, and by that same power, Look at what he says. The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition or destruction of ungodly men. That's God's answer. Where was the promise of his coming? And so the fire and the judgment and the the perdition of ungodly men will occur on the same day, according to this text. The same word of God which brought a worldwide flood is going to bring forth a judgment of fire in that day. And so what is God's answer? All things have not and will not continue the same. But look at how much time has passed. But time is no problem with God. Look at what the record says. Verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now sometimes that, that verse confuses a lot of people. And I think it's because we don't understand God. And again, let me quote... <laughs> Let me quote correctly, Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We have to comprehend God. We have to comprehend this almighty, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-wise, holy God. This God of love and this God of wrath. 
This God of mercy and kindness, but yet this same God of judgment and justice. This God who created us. And this same God who gives us free will and going to judge us. This same God who created us for his glory. God could have made us his robots. God could have made us in such a way that we did everything he wanted us to do. Isn't that what the sun does? Isn't that what the moon does? Isn't that what animals do? But God gives us free will. And you know what? You know when God is glorified? When we make the decision, I'm not going to do what I want to do, but I'm going to do what God wants me to do. That's exactly what Jesus did at Calvary. Not my will, but thy will be done. God is glorified when we submit our will to him and we recognize that God is right and that his way is right. So we need to comprehend God. God hasn't revealed the time of the Lord's coming. And even if it is another 2,000 years or longer, the promise is no way going to be affected. To understand the idea of time simply helps us to understand the patience and the long-suffering of God. There was a time that we can read about in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament when people were disobedient to God that God struck them just like that. Remember Ananias and Sapphira. Nadab and Abihu. The prolonging of the day of his coming is to be credited to his long suffering, not to slothfulness. But the point of the matter is the day of the Lord will come. Now, you got to remember, the scoffers are the ones who's asking this question. For, for, for those who know God, those who understand God, those who are God's children. We've all been beneficiaries of God's patience and his long suffering because we've obtained his favor. We've obtained his grace and his mercy because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God didn't just zap us like that, but he gave us time and he gives us time. And God desires and God is willing. He doesn't want any to re- He doesn't want any to perish, but he wants all to come to the knowledge of the truth. Yes, but Second Thessalonians in chapter two, verse one, there is evidence again. The Lord will come. And so again, the Lord's not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but he's long suffering to us with. Not willing that not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance, verse ten. And one of the things we need to recognize is that this phrase, the day of the Lord, just like we read in the book of Matthew in chapter 24, the coming of the Lord, it confuses a lot of people. And sometimes people cannot determine whether we're talking about figurative language or actually talking about literal language. But in the context of what we're talking about, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord. When he talks about the coming of the Lord as a thief in the night and the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men, they all refer to the same day. And Paul uses the same phraseology, the day of the Lord, to refer to the coming of our Lord and our gathering together unto him. And so what this does is it leaves no place for a thousand year reign. That's a part of a doctrine called premillennialism, which, like the Jews, they fail to understand the spiritual nature of the kingdom. In John 18, verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, then my servant would fight. But lo, my kingdom is not of this world. May I again remind us that the king is on his throne? May I remind us of the statement that Peter made on the day of Pentecost when Peter said, This same Jesus whom you've crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. May I remind us of the statement that Paul made in the book of Colossians 1.13 when he says he has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love. The kingdom is the governing aspect of that relationship where Jesus Christ is Lord and those who are in his kingdom, they serve. What do servants do? They serve. They serve their master. They serve their king. They acknowledge their will to him that he is Lord. They do what their master tells them to do. And even after they've done all that is commanded of them, they are still unprofitable servants. And so having said that, The day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it are going to be burned up. And that's the reason why verse 11 begins with the word therefore. And so, folks, as far as this lesson is concerned, we've got our application right here in the text. Look at the application. Therefore, since all these things are going to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Wow. What a long sentence. But there's a question mark there. And folks, we have to answer that. So, the question that we've been entertaining tonight, where is the promise of his coming? Well, we know the Lord's going to come back. So how should we then live? Well, that's what Peter is telling us. We, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. We're talking about a new habitation. If this earth, this world, this cosmos is going to be burned up, then there's going to be a new place. And again, we're going to talk about that tomorrow. There's going to be a change. There's a, there are changes ahead. And I got to tell you what, we ought to get excited about that. You know, especially as we grow older. And that's something else I did last night. I, I didn't compute properly that sister that I talked about that was 94 years old. She got her four school 10 and 4. But oh, I tell you, when we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, this don't work, that don't work. But let me tell you what, God's going to give us new bodies. I'm just telling you that a change is going to come. And I invite you to come back tomorrow night, folks. What is it going to be like when we get to heaven? But as far as right now, how should we then live? Well, let's listen to what Peter tells us. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, let's be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Why did Jesus die? So he could present her to himself without spot and without blemish. Pure and undefiled. You know, when we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're washed clean. Our sins are washed away. We have a new slate. So we need to learn how to live holy lives. We need to learn how to live so our lives don't become a spot. So we don't become a spot in a local congregation. I think sometimes we don't understand the concept of holiness. 
The concept of holiness is described to God. And for lack of time, let me point your attention to the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, verse 14. I know many of us are familiar with that passage. And a lot of times I know the first thing people think about is marriage. And that might not even be what the Apostle Paul is talking about. But he begins by asking rhetorical questions. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has doctors with light? What fellowship has Christ with Belial? None. And therefore come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And ignore the chapter break. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Holiness is God's crown. There used to be a soap that was described as 99.44, pure, as if to suggest that there were some impurities in it. And yes, there are. But when we look at God, God is pure in all he is. His name is holy, holy, holy. And it is emphasized because of his purity. Because of his nature, because of his judgments, because of his thoughts. And we are commanded in the book of 1 Peter in chapter 1 and verse 13. Be ye holy as I am holy. And that ought to characterize us. Our conduct. What we say, what we do all of our lives. And can I tell you plainly and basically how we can characterize our lives with the life of holiness? Merely, simply, thanksgiving. If we would recognize the grace of God that's being extended to us, and if we would just simply say thank you to God for who he is and what he has done, it would motivate us to live the kind of lives we ought to live. Thanksgiving ought to characterize the people of God. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5 and 18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Let me put it to you like this, young people. We talked last night about there's a generation that's raised up today that they are ungrateful. But let me say this to you, young people. And we got several of them here. Go to your parents and tell your parents and tell them often, Mom, Dad, I'm not coming to ask you for anything. I don't want anything. I just want you to know just how much I love you and I thank you. Now, you got to be prepared for this because you might, you might have to call a doctor. Just tell them, I don't want anything. I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. I appreciate the sacrifices you make. I appreciate all the things you do for me. I want you to know how much I love you. I'm not asking for anything. And you take those same thoughts and you thank God. And God does tell us to ask. But he tells us to ask with thanksgiving. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. With prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God which guards your heart. Let me tell you, brother. If we are thankful people. We're thinking about God and what God has done for us. We're going to live our lives to try to sin as less and less as we possibly can. Not because we'll feel the guilt when we do, but because we don't want to disappoint God. Just like young people don't want to disappoint their parents. Second of all, what does Peter say? He says, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, is written to you. 
Yeah, Paul wrote some difficult things. As also in his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. So live without peace. Live with peace, I should say. In peace, without spot and blameless. And live in such a way that nobody can point a finger at you. And there'll be people who do. But you know what's been said? Live in such a way that you prove them not true. And then remain steadfast to the end. Be faithful every day of your life. We raise a question on Sunday night. Who is a faithful and wise servant? When the Lord comes back, you simply be doing what you know you ought to be doing. You be like the Marines. If there are any Marines in here, ask them what simple fidelis means. Those Latin words mean always faithful. When you come up out of that watery grave and you name the name of Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, the one I put my faith in, my Lord and my God. When you say I do to Jesus, you're saying I do, I will for the rest of my life, even in the face of death. And then last but not least, you grow as a Christian. Verse 18, growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him, to God, be the glory both now and forever. And amen. Where's the promise of his coming? The evidence is here. It's unmistakable. And all I'm saying is that we need to think more about. We need to teach more about. The fact that the Lord is going to come. And when he comes, that that trumpet is going to blow. It's going to be sweet music to our ears because that means that it will be time for us then to go home. And so the matter of the Lord's return cannot scripturally be reduced so as to ask when will he come because he's coming. There's no doubt that faithful Christians wonder about the growing wickedness of the world and the extent of the long-suffering of God. But nevertheless, even if the Lord's coming is delayed by the Father for another two millenniums or beyond, the truth of the matter is Jesus is coming. And until then, we simply should act as that preserving salt for the world that is mentioned in that Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew in chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Now, what does that remind you of? i tell you what it reminds me of. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That reminds me that there are still people in this world yet to be saved. That tells me that that's what lies at the very heart of God. That tells me if I love God, if I love the souls of men, I'm going to be living my life in such a way that I'm going to be more concerned about souls. Because not only do I want to go to heaven, I want to try to take as many people with me. May each of us, as God's children, take each step of the day in anticipation of the coming of the great last day for our Lord. And the message is simply, be ready. Because he's coming back. And it may be at any time. And so the lesson is yours. I appreciate your attention. When Christ does return, where will you be? If you're dead, as we will continue to be reminded tomorrow night, you'll be in a head-in world where all people go when they die. 
you will either have made the decision to obey Christ or you may not. But when Christ does come, there'll be no more opportunities to obey the gospel. If you know the truth now and you haven't done what God requires of you, then it will be too late. But if you know the truth now, you have opportunity now, we are beseeching you simply to act upon that truth. To simply obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Allow him to become your savior. Allow his precious blood to cleanse you. It's the only thing that will save you. The blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that will save you. If you understand the name Jesus, it simply means Savior. Jehovah is Savior. That's why God sent him. Who is he to you? Is he your Savior? Just saying those words don't mean anything. But when you respond to him, when you respond to his invitation, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You don't need to know everything. All you need to know is who Jesus is and recognize what he wants for you, what the Father wants for you. He wants to save you. He wants to cleanse you from all of your sins. And if you will allow him to do that, what we're asking you this evening is take the bold step to acknowledge the fact that I am willing to place my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm willing to follow him. I'm going to turn my back on sin. I'm going to turn my back on the world. And I'm going to come to Jesus. I will confess him. And I will be, I'm willing to be buried with him in the waters of baptism so my sins can be washed away. And when you do that, you have the assurance from God's word. And if it isn't clear enough to you yet, I tell you what, after we finish services, you have any further questions, you meet me in the back. You meet Brother Bob in the back. You ask any questions that you may. We want to help you go to heaven. And I'm just telling you, you can't get to heaven without Jesus and doing what he has to say. And if you're a child of God and you haven't lived the, know you, the way you know you ought to live, if you wait until Jesus comes back and you don't change that, it's going to be too late. Live right. Do right. Be ready when Jesus comes. The invitation is yours. While together, we stand and sing.